But I didn't like it that much, and I missed actually building shit. Like I wanted to make stuff, and I didn't get to do that. And a lot of times I would be, I would sit down with a founder if I could, and I'd say, "Here's what I think you should do," or "Here we'd work out a strategy," and then they'd go off and they wouldn't do any of that stuff, and it'd be frustrating. Hey everyone, you're tuning in the Founder Hour with Pat and Posh. We're here with Jeff Solomon. He's a serial entrepreneur who's founded and sold multiple businesses, which we'll get into. Uh, Jeff, it's a great you know pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks guys. Good to be here. Awesome. Thank you. So the way we usually like to kick off these podcasts is really like get a sense of your upbringing and maybe your childhood. Oh, really? And, that far? You need to go that far? Yeah. You know, we don't have to go We're trying to go very far back, and okay. you're not that old, so, you yeah. know. All right, get into the, yeah. the real well, dysfunction. We found that it really matters, and we see a lot of, like, you know, things that we noticed, like, oh, you were like this as a kid, and now you're doing this. So, right. Um, so, yeah, we don't have to go too deep into it, but tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I know you grew up in, in L.A. You went I, did, to, I grew up in L.A., but I wasn't born cool. here. Interesting. I was yeah, born in Connecticut. Um, my dad was, like, a pretty sort of hardcore corporate guy that went to Wharton and mm. like worked at, you know, big companies and was like always that kind of guy. And so he also moved around a lot. So I was in Connecticut till I was like seven. And then we actually moved to Toronto in Canada. Well, wow. that was supposed to be like a two to three year like stint. And then we ended up staying there like uh, 11 months. It was very short. It's a cool place. Toronto was cool. Yeah, I could sense that there's a little bit of a Canadian in you. Can you? No, I don't have. There's no Canadian. <laughs> I didn't get in catch any of that. Um, I skied a little. I should have played. I should have started playing hockey uh, yeah. while I was there. But um, no, so that was just like a year, and then I did move out to LA. And we, my mom was like, "I'm not moving again." So we kind of got. We stayed in LA since then. And why did you move out here? Was it for, for your dad? Yeah, he work? got another job. Like he just kept, you know, getting moving up from like corporation to corporation. And the, the thing was like growing up, he never worked for anything like interesting. Like it was like he worked for a long time. He worked for this company, Playtex, which makes like pro, bras and panties. And for like an eight year old, it wasn't interesting. It might be more interesting now. Yeah. Like I could maybe have some use yeah. for that, but yeah. at the time it was not. And then he worked for like Max Factor Cosmetics and it was like, you know, lipsticks and stuff. And if he had a daughter, I was the only child. If he had a daughter, maybe that would have been interesting. But And so what never, was his like role? Like what what did he do? He was like companies? a senior exec. So, you know, eventually becoming a president of these companies. And, he, okay. and um, you know, he good at managing a lot of people and, um, you know, he would eventually he became really good at like fixing companies. Mm -hmm. And so he stopped being this like guy that would go in as a as an employee. And he started getting brought on by um, like private equity firms into these like deals that are falling apart. Mm -hmm. And that's when it actually started to get interesting in terms of the companies that he was working for. So I was like sort of headed out like I think maybe my junior year in high school or sophomore year in high school, he got the the movie theater company Man's Theaters, you yeah. know Man's Theaters, the Man's yeah. Chinese Theater. Yeah. So that company went through bankruptcy, and so they brought him in, and he was basically president of Man's Theaters for like eighteen months. So it would be a short thing, yeah. but he would go in and like try and fix it, or take it through bankruptcy and try and get the private equity firm, whoever the banks were, as much as they could. And uh, so that was cool. Like you know, I got to go to movies for free. I had this card. I remember I had this like gold card that I could go to any movie. Anytime, unlimited people, unlimited concessions. Amazing. It was like that was like the best. You're like that, don't leave. Yeah, Stay that was there. cool. Yeah. That was like the first company he ever was like. It was like interesting to me. Yeah. But also, it just wasn't what he was doing was not that interesting to me. You know, I I didn't know I was an entrepreneur at that time or would be, but I definitely did not relate to 
the type of stuff that he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, even looking back, he probably didn't really relate to the way that I looked at, you know, life and myself, you know, I was like making, having lemonade stands and car wash things and like trying to figure out ways to make money and just, you know, trying to shuck and jive as my dad would say, you know? So we were kind of very different, but he respected it. He was like supportive and he was never like, Oh, you got to go to Wharton like me. Like, yeah. He was not like that. Which is cool. So, so what did you do after high school? Um, well, first, let me just tell you about high school a little bit. Huh. I, I sucked at school. Like, and it was not, you know, for a lack of trying, like I was a hard worker and I went to, I went to Brentwood, which mm. is pretty like mm -hmm. intense college prep school. And, um, so, you know, I just looked bad because I, I didn't get great grades on tests and like, I just, I didn't fit that mold, you know, my SATs weren't so good. And so, but you know, it's a big college school. So they're like, Oh, you apply to all these schools, you apply to 15 schools, you'll get into these great schools. So I did, and um, like 14 or 15 schools, and I got into one, <laughs> one school. And so it was obvious where I was going, and that school was Arizona State. Mm -hmm. um, Party school? Yeah, which at that time, like nobody prior to me at Brentwood had gone to Arizona State. It was like, you know. You were the Penn, pioneer. Yeah, it was You're like the, you pioneered and that, yeah. Berkeley and yeah. like Stanford and stuff. And then since then, like I think one or two people have gone to ASU. So not it's not paved the way. big yeah, I paved the way. <laughs> but it was like it turned out to be like the best thing for me because I actually wasn't dumb. You know, I left high school thinking that I wasn't very smart. Like it didn't look appear on the outside that I like, knew anything. But I actually did learn a lot of stuff. I just didn't wasn't able to apply it in the structure of you know, traditional school. Yeah, you're like, what am I learning all this for? Because I'm not, I'm not applying it right now. So it's kind of just like I, you know, someone's just speaking to me in a classroom. And yeah, I, I don't feel like and I'm I learning. And I just didn't, anything. I didn't, I don't like respond to like memorize, regurgitate. You know, the standard yeah. sort of methodology that school uses, especially then. Like now, it's evolving a little bit. And in fact, I'll I'll share on that because I actually now also teach. Um, but uh, so I didn't think I really knew much. Right. But then when I got to college, I actually did very well without having to do a lot of work because it's a lot more loose. You know, it's yeah. like sort of like, hey, find your own path. Like if you can get an A this way, like it's cool with me. Yeah. Uh, so it turned out to be like a great place for me. And I... I you, you studied know, English in college, right? I did study why, English. Why was that? Did you want to go to like law no, school? Or, no, no, I didn't. I, I, I st <laughs> at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So again, because my dad was this business guy, I'm like, oh, I'll go into the business school. So I started as a undergrad business major. And I took like the first courses, which was like macroeconomics and microeconomics stuff. And I got an F in macroeconomics. Nice. But I, I was, but in English, which English was my worst subject in high school. Like I was mm -hmm. like, I'm taking English 101 and 102 and then I'm out. Like that's book it. reports and stuff. You to yeah, read books I was just, I'm done. But then I got an A in English. I'm like, this is weird. Because a lot of the other kids in the English class were really struggling. Huh. I was like, hmm, that's strange. And I was like, well, I don't really need this business thing. I'm going to switch. So I just switched to liberal arts. And then I realized also that you could take a lot of these like electives, you know, like art and stuff like that. And that would count for credit in mm -hmm. the liberal arts college. So it was like just a much smoother, straighter path. It was mm -hmm. just basically the simplest and straightest path, which is really what entrepreneurship has been all about for right. me. It's like, what's the simplest, straightest path to the result that I'm looking for? Um, and that's kind of what I did. Wh which was what though? Like, what did you have in your mind? At, like, I'm going to graduate college and I'm going to do, I didn't have anything. I just wanted to graduate college. I was right. like, I just need to get decent enough grades that I can like party and have a good time and, you know, enjoy and my still life. Make it out alive. Yeah. And yeah. still get out of here. Uh, that was the goal. And then, you know, when I finally did graduate, I had to sort of figure out what I was going to do. In fact, my dad, when I graduated, he was like, he was, my dad was a, he, in this organization called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. So, like, growing up, he had a lot of, like, wealthy friends that owned companies and, 
not a lot of entrepreneurs at that time in NYPO, more so now, but um, he had this one buddy that owned this company that made, at the time, CDs were like a thing. There wasn't MP3s and stuff like this when I graduated I yeah. high school. And uh, they made like all the cut, the guts for Case Logic. You know, it was like the mm -hmm. main case company. And he's like, oh, you should just go see my friend. He's got this company. They make like sleeves and stuff. Like maybe he'll have a job for you. And I went to see this guy like a couple months before I graduated. And he's like, well... I don't know what you're good at or what you're going to do, but your dad's a really smart guy, so I'll just hire you and you can figure it out. <laughs> and that's that's, perfect. it was yeah. actually perfect because, like, I came into that company and, like, transformed it. It was, like, old. The company's been around for, like, 50 years. It was, like, very stale, no fire, no thought around product development. It was always responsive, like, hey, we need this. And they'd be like, oh, we can build that. It wasn't mm -hmm. like, hey, what if we build this? And then maybe we can find people to buy it. But where were, where were you getting that? knowledge and wisdom from was it just you kind of assessing the situation and being like i think that should be what we do here or was there actually like a working knowledge and you know you had the facts and you had the research done no there wasn't anything there i mean i, I got there not knowing what it was going to be like i mean in fact the first thing they asked me to do was to build their website there's people didn't have websites at that time and i didn't know how to do that but i was i was on the web and i was like getting into that i'm like i can probably figure it out which i did and then as I did that, I got to see like all the areas of product that they have and all the licenses and like all the stuff. It kind of was like a crash course in their business. And then as I was doing that, it just intuitively dawned on me. It's like, well, what about this? Or maybe we could build that. Or like, oh, I see you have that machine. It's making these things. We have this other category over here. Why don't we make these things? And I just sort of started to get creative. Um, and at the same time, the other thing that I learned there was um, like business process. I, I had this like false assumption that like any company of size and in that case they had like you know a couple hundred employees they were doing like 40 50 million in sales like it was a big company and i was like any company like that has their shit together can you swear on this podcast or is like absolutely like, go for it like they did like had their game on they like knew what they were doing and as we would go through things they would like they, we'd work on a new product and they'd go through the steps to like bring a product to market and be like, well, why do you do that that way? I'm like, oh, it's the way we've always done it for like the last 20 years. Like, it was just weird. It doesn't make any sense. Like, mm -hmm. why don't we try this? Yeah. And then I started to implement these like processes, like simple stuff, like Excel spreadsheets and like checklists and just junk like that, just mm -hmm. logical, like intuitive stuff. And then people were like, oh my God, this is like way better way to do this. Like, and they really got on board and people like really yeah. liked the energy that I brought. And so it was like a very big ego builder for me. And kind of, kind of hearing about how you, how you did literally all that. Right. And uh, you know, you're kind of just, you have, you have your hands in pretty much everything and uh, like kind of hearing about who your dad was and the, you know, what the roles he played in his, the, the, where the companies that he worked at. Um, and then I think I saw online that like you've like you said you've done everything from like cleaning like you know the janitorial yeah. stuff all the way yeah. to being CEO. So why do you? I mean, before I get into that, like at this time, did you ever think like I'm not really focusing on anything? Maybe ten years from now, I don't know if I can continue to do everything. I have to like have a focus. No, I never had that thought. I yeah. just, I didn't really like especially at that time. I wasn't really looking that far ahead. It was just sort of like what's the next action in front of me and I probably to some extent I'm still that that way like yeah. there to, and there's some negative effect of that for certain but generally I was not like thinking about like oh if I do this like everything for everyone skill set like is yeah. that going to screw me later because I feel like there's like li lifelong de debate of like is it better to be a generalist or a specialist yeah. right and oftentimes you know generalists 
I found that could be more stressed or more depressed because they don't have like a clear focus. Yeah. So I was just, I'm just curious, like if you ever felt that way. Well, I, yeah. since since I've had many experiences and thoughts around that, at that time I didn't. I was just very much like, this is cool. I'm getting to do lots of stuff. I hadn't done anything before, so I had no previous like yeah. benchmark. Yeah. So it seemed great, you know. In you know, in retrospect, over time I realized I was a generalist, and that in fact not my first company, but not my second company, third company, the one that exited in the fall. Um, over time at that company, when I, I started, I was doing everything, right? But as the company grew and we needed more specialists, it actually became, I became more of like a disruptor in yeah. the company and ineffective and frustrated. And so eventually I came to the conclusion that I needed to leave that company, which was actually a very difficult to do, but also very, it was a very good decision, both for the company and its potential success, and for me as an individual. Like, you know, I, I tell people often, like, when I left there, I'd been there seven years, and then when I started to see that and observe that and sort of realize that, like, I wasn't optimal for this type of company anymore, and I put the the sadness and, like, you know, ego aside, um, I realized, like, there were, they, I wasn't getting any more stock. It's not like they were gonna, I was going to get anything else. I had a nice salary, but mm-hmm. I could apply myself elsewhere and if that company grew it'd be the same result like if i stayed there for another five or six years and exited you get the same amount of money hmm. that it would if i left and spent those five or six years on something else right right so it actually was better to take my resources and split them elsewhere and let someone else kind of run with it which so, a lot of people have a hard time doing a lot of founders so what did you do after you know you left you're there seven years do you at this point recognize that there's this entrepreneurial spirit inside you and you want to do your own thing or is it just I want to take what I learned, apply it somewhere else. Well, let's just make sure everyone's clear. Like the company I'm talking about is many years past the first one we were talking about. The this plastic is company. This is Velocify. Yeah. Which we'll get so, into. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that I'd already like, I'm already clearly an entrepreneur, like right. clearly starting things from scratch. Like, yeah. So what I meant was the original company. That the original company. Yeah. When I left there, that was, it was right at the internet, like boom. Like, mm-hmm. And I had met this guy that was... A shaker like i don't know if you read my blog post about shakers but this guy was just like one of these guys is just like you stand underneath his tree and like stuff falls he's a little shady huh. but you know and so he was like he had his hand in all kinds of stuff and he, he liked me and so he's like come work for me and so i left and went to work at his startup and he kind of like maneuvered pieces together and kind of got an exit and raised some money and so i got a taste of like startupville and i got some money and i was like what were you of, doing there? What was the? What was I was the business? doing business development. You know, kind of. In, at that time, there it was still these these startups really didn't have like clarity on the roles like they do now. So it was kind of like a little bit of everything mm. kind of thing. But his sort of right hand man, um, and that was the first like startup. It wasn't my startup, yeah. But it was still that environment, and it was also a little bit more tech oriented. It wasn't quite as much as I later became but much more than the company I was at. Like we were a manufacturing company at that time. This was, this was getting into like tech and internet. So I was more right. interested in that. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so the, then you're there, you're doing business development. When do you start your first, your own first startup? So after that company, uh, sort of sold, um, and I got, I had some stock and I got a little bit of money and my, I got my ego like inflated yeah. quite large, and I was like, "Oh, I can do this." Myself. These are startups. Yeah, yeah. This, this is easy. And the <laughs> internet was like killing it. Yeah. And so then I started with 
five friends, like actual high school buddies, college buddies. Like we started a company um, and we left there. We raised a little bit of money, but it was right as like the internet was crashing down. So it was like the end of it all. And, you know, we really didn't have a business model. Like we were just building cool stuff. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot, a, a lot from that experience. That company crashed and burned and it was pretty emotional and like painful to go through that. Cause I was like the heart of that company. It was like my vision. And I was like the guy and everybody was like behind me and everything. What was the company? It was this company. We, the name of the company was Zoop. Um, I was going to ask you how to pronounce that. Yeah. yeah. X O P. And, uh, it was basically a, interestingly, like it was kind of ahead of its time in some ways. It was a desktop app. They didn't have mobile phone apps, but it was an, an actual installable application on PC only at that time. Um, and it was, I guess, a little Twitter-esque in the sense that it like fed content to you into this like tool, toolbar. And there was a couple, there was a bunch of others at that time that were doing some of that kind of stuff, like these toolbar things. Um, but this was like, you know, interesting content. Like you know? news, or some of it was news. Some yeah. of it was more interesting. And we, at the time, we didn't hadn't built like a scraping engine to like go collect it all. Mm -hmm. It was all manually curated by people, which oh, was wow. cool because yeah. we got good content, but it was expensive right. and not really scalable. Um, but it was it was a content delivery, you know, a la Twitter kind of mm -hmm. thing, a feed kind of thing. Did um, APIs even exist back then? Like not you, really. Yeah, I mean, there were custom things that some companies had, but it wasn't. There wasn't like <clears throat> open APIs you could access, and but the tech was that we built was really cool. Like we built it in, in the guy we had developing built it in C plus plus. So it was like my first mm -hmm. like exposure to like real hardcore software, mm -hmm. um, which I really loved. Like he and I got along really well, and like I just it became very very clear to me that like you could build stuff in software, and that that became like very a very big passion of mine. We also built a lot of web tools to support that product. So we had like administration admin mm -hmm. systems. And that was, I think we built that in ASP Classic. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. I was like, oh, you can build these tools to manage your business, you know? Mm -hmm. And it really kind of like cemented this thing that I'd seen at that first company where it's like they had all these problems. And I was building all these like paper systems to deal with it. I'm like, well, actually, you can build a lot of this stuff on the web. Yeah. That's where like business software and ultimately Velocify was a CRM system. It was kind of that that thing that came out of that. So Jeff, you said after this, you know, Zoop kind of crashed and burned. You were definitely not in the best frame of mind. Like you know, it was sort of depressing. I can assume it was very depressing. Like yeah. I went to a bit of a tailspin for a few months. Yeah. How did you How did you get out of that? Did how did you pick yourself back up to you know Yeah. Get out of that kind of state of mind. Um. I'm not sure if I can think of like something as like, oh, today I'm going to get out of it. It was sort of yeah. just an evolution. I had to. It was time. It was time. Yeah. I just kind of had to p go through its sort of life cycle. I think maybe I've learned now that like, you know, as much as I want to avoid negative emotions, it's like my default, like, oh, negative emotion, like get away. But actually like the healthy, healthiest thing is to like just sit with that yeah. and, and it eventually will go away. So, and I did do that, but not, it wasn't by design. I think now when I get those feelings, like, I'm like, oh, okay, let me, let me just sit back and let that pass. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it just took some time and I needed to make money. Um, and so I was just like, I'll just build web tools for people because I knew how to do that. And I liked it. And I had a few of these friends that were programmers. I wasn't a programmer at that time. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if I would call myself a product person, but I think I was. Um, but I was like, I can build things. 
And so I just built this company called ThinkLogic. It was just a consulting firm. We'd, I'd, we'd build anything anybody wanted, but mostly business tools, not so much like fancy graphical websites. Um, and so I, it, it was actually quite fun because I would go into a company and they'd be like, here's what we're trying to do, or here's our process, or here's how it all works. I'm like, okay, I understand. Let me turn that into a tool for you to automate it and organize it and track it and let people different people do different things. And I did that for a number of years, and it was a nice, lucrative, cash-oriented business. Um, but it was—it wasn't something you could go get venture funding for. And even—and at, at that time, like that wasn't even like a thing. Like people weren't really talking about that. This is like 2000, 1999 to yeah. four is when I was doing that. And on the back end, was it kind of like your way of saying? you know, I, I had my first business. It didn't go the way I wanted to. Now let me go into these businesses that must be doing pretty well, but see like what's missing and see what could improve them and, and maybe like find something that is going to become scalable. Like one, I didn't have that thought. Product. No, I can't give myself that much credit. <laughs> I, I didn't think I was just like, I can build stuff. Yeah. I can probably find people that need stuff built yeah. that don't know what they're doing. Let me go build stuff. Yeah. It wasn't, I, many times I credit my partner at Philosophy, who was also one of my partners from Zoop, who I went to call, he went to a different college with my best friend from high school. So we became friends. We weren't like super close friends because out of that, that startup that like crashed and burned, like a few of those people, those relationships were never the same. Like one of the guys was like my roommate, like best friends from high school, like that guy and I. We talked from time to time, but it, it, it damaged the relationship. This guy, we didn't have a previous relationship, and he was an engineer. And so he, uh, he, we stayed friends, and he was doing projects for me, like consulting projects for ThinkLogic. And then he went to USC to get his MBA. And um, what was interesting is that he was an engineer that wanted to become a business guy. I was mm -hmm. like a sort of business guy that wanted to be more <laughs> on the engineering and tech side. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he went to get his MBA, and he was working for me on the side. And then when he graduated, this was like, late 2003 early 2004 he was like dude this think logic thing is cool and you're making nice you know salary and money and you're building fun cool stuff but it's there's no like asset here there's nothing that you can really build and sell like no one's gonna buy this yeah company. it's more so like a service business a, it was a service business and that's, that was my question like i was kind of curious like did Velocify start out of a project through think Logic? it did but it wasn't it wasn't because i had that intuition it wasn't that time. intentional it yeah. was it was intentional but it wasn't, it wasn't. my intention it was yeah, charles right. that came into the situation and he got was it. like whatever he had learned in school the one nugget that he got from his MBA program at SC was, dude, you got to like build something. What do you got? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hmm, let me think about that. And it really like completely transformed my thinking. And I went back and I looked at everything I'd been building over the last like three or four or five years. And I realized that like there were assets there that could be productized and turned into a SaaS application. That's how we spun out Velocify. And in fact, Think Logic essentially incubated that company. Like mm -hmm. it was one of the first sort of incubation type scenarios where it's Think Logic had an office, we had revenue, we had people. So we basically paid the bills while we developed this product. And eventually the company was originally called Leads360 before mm -hmm. it was called Velocify. Eventually that sort of had a, enough of its own resources that we spun it off into its own entity. And then I left Think Logic and sold that off to another guy. Hmm. Um, and then who still runs it today? It's still around. Wow. And he does quite well with it. Um, and that's how Velocify was born. So during this time, are you are you really hustling to get business, or is it just 
mostly people that know who you are and know your work that are coming to you? On the ThinkLogic side? On or the ThinkLogic side. It was a combination. Like, I would get a referral, but I became very good at sales. Like, I was always pretty good at sales, but at this company, I would go in and, like, actually sell the deals. Mm -hmm. You know, someone would be like, oh, I talked to these guys, they need something, and I'd go in and then it was in the understanding of their problem, which is really, you know, at the time I didn't know what it was I was doing, but now looking looking back on all the materials and all the like startup stuff and the same stuff that I teach my students, you know, it's like identify that acute problem and like build the solution to meet that acute problem. Like that's what I was doing. I'd go into the company and I'd listen. Yeah. I'd be like, okay, I understand what you're trying to accomplish. I understand your problem. Let me solve it for you. Right. And that was the that was the magic at that business. So when Charles came to you and said, "Hey, like you got to build a product. What do you got?" and you went and back, you know, looked back at your like repertoire of like products that you had built, why did you choose Velocify? Was it one of the ones that maybe you saw like time and time again the companies that you're working with had that problem or issue that Velocify was solving for them, or were you just like the most passionate about that? No, it was, it was a perfect storm of things that made it sort of come to be. One. What I realized is like a lot of the stuff I'd been building was kind of CRM systems. But in the last year, there was another guy who was part of the founding team at Velocifier Leads360. It was still called Leads360 when I left. So that's kind of like the name that we like. Yeah. The original that's baby. That's the name. real name. Yeah. But um, this other guy, Scotty, is a great dude, still friends with, was doing like outside sales for me. He was trying to like bring in deals. We had met back at the Zoop days. He was involved in some shady thing that I was involved in. Whatever, we became friends. <laughs> and um, he was out there selling deals. And it what he sort of stumbled on, and I don't know if he really realized this or not, but he saw this like that there was a lot of mortgage companies that were growing at that time, right? And we didn't deliberately be like, hey, mortgage is gonna is on fire, like this whole subprime thing, like we should get into this. It wasn't like that. He was like bringing in deals and they happen to be mortgage companies. They happen to be these subprime mortgage companies. And so the things we were building for these guys, they were exactly the same. They were basically these lead management systems. Mm -hmm. And instead of building one-offs, I would reuse code, but it was like their system, their system, their system. That's where we discovered like, hey, maybe we could build a system for people that manage leads. And that was how Velocify came, sort of came to be. So it was Scotty that found that little hole, yeah. the little opportunity, which ended up being a big opportunity. We like you know, a lot, a lot of startup success has to do with luck and timing, you know, and you can somewhat manipulate that, but not fully. And the timing was huge in terms of the, uh, mortgage boom, you know, and unfortunately it was on the backs of, you know, bad process. And so like we participated in that and enabled that in a, in a way, but there was so much money coming into these mortgage companies through these subprime loans and these companies like lower my bills and lending tree and all these guys that were generating just leads and selling them for like 30, 50 bucks a pop, that industry was just exploding. And so we came in at the right time with a tool that optimized that process for the mortgage companies who were spending tons of money marketing and the lead companies that were spending ton of mon tons of money generating leads but the, the, the mortgage companies were ineffective with these leads. And so that was like the problem that we identified. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be one of the most important discoveries at least 360, certainly, but in just in general in my career. And I tell this to a lot of founders, like partnerships often don't work. Like business development partnerships rarely work. And the only time they really work or have a high probability of working is when 
when like you're actually enabling the partner to do their current business better. Like if you try to go to a partner and be like, hey, you're already selling to these guys, you should sell my product too. Or like, we could do this together, right? Then they're trying to like move away from their core competency to help you and you're trying to move away from your core competency to help them. But when so your lose, core lose. company, yeah, yeah, when your core competency actually empowers them to do theirs better and that's it, they're going to get behind it. And that's what happened. Lower my bills and the was the big one, but all the lead companies were selling leads, but the mortgage companies were ineffective with those leads. We basically came in and said, hey, lead generator, we're going to make your client more effective, which means they're going to stick longer and buy more. Oh, okay, perfect. That's our problem. That's our mm -hmm. core problem. Hey, mortgage company, you're buying these leads and they're not working. We're going to help you make them work better. It was a win-win for both those guys. So we were able to get clients and we were able to get referrals from the lead companies. It was like the perfect storm. Mm. So we grew like very fast on that circumstance, which in the end it crashed and burned. And like we basically cycled through almost 100% of our clients in 2008. Like we almost went under in 2008. Like it was a close. It was close. Wow. We had to fire a ton of people. I remember being in Hawaii with my wife on our baby moon and I was talking to our VC. We'd raised one round at that time. And he was, I was like furious. Like he was like, no, we're not going to give you more money. We're running out of money. I'm like, fuck this. I'm, I'm just going to shut down the business. Like, I don't care. Like it was that close, like to just wow. shutting down. And we ended up getting some more money out of them and keep going. But 2008 was rough for us. So how did, how did you come out of that? We just, we did get, they, we had raised originally 5 million. I want to say was our original raise from them. And then this is Rustic Canyon here in LA, and there wasn't a lot of VC. There's a whole story behind how we raise money. That's actually interesting too. But um, we needed more money. We were running out of money, and <clears throat> you know we were losing clients left and right. And we needed like just time to weather it and to shift our our focus and stuff. And I was able to get them to give us another three million bucks, which was enough to get us out of that hole um, and start to diversify into other categories and like you know have a stronger business. Um, but it was, it was close. It was close. So Jeff, tell us about this fundraising story. It seems like it's an interesting story based on what you were, you know, what you were saying. And I know that especially nowadays, it just seems like left and right, you're hearing these stories of this company raises $30 million, 20 million. It just seems like there's so much money out there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm particularly, particularly curious as to, where that money is really coming from, but also where it's going to lead to. During that time, was it, was it number one, was it easy to get that kind of money? And number two, I want to hear the story. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a thing. Like this is, we raised our first round in maybe 2006. Mm -hmm. And just, it wasn't a thing. Like there was no accelerators. There wasn't, there weren't like seed funds. There were, you know, there were angels, but it wasn't, there wasn't a, infrastructure definitely not in LA like San Francisco and Silicon Valley it existed but still it was going it was the big VCs so I we were like talking about maybe raising money and Charles and Tony my two partners were like not sure about it they were kind of like didn't know and I was like I'm gonna go down this path and see if I can like figure something out and um I went to this fast pitch competition um which was run by the Tech Coast Angels which was around mm -hmm. at that time they don't do this pitch competition anymore, but it was at UCLA Anderson and it was like 10 companies. You get 60 seconds to pitch your company. And then they had a panel of investors that will rate you or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
and I murdered it. Like I, I won, I just like, I killed it. I won the competition. I won every category. Like they had to not give me categories because they were like, oh, we can't let this guy take all four categories. Do you remember like, that 60 second pitch? Yeah, I have, I have the audio. I have the audio okay. still. I play it for my students sometimes. Okay. Yeah. And we might I, have to add that to the podcast. You can play, you can put a link to it <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It's, um, I like wrote it. I practiced it. It was shocking to me. Like, you know, even though I wasn't like a great student, like, I guess I learned some things. And one of the things I learned is like, here's the instructions. Like your pitch has to be done in 60 seconds. Or you're going to shut the mic off. So like, I was sure I was going to be done in 60 seconds. Like I practiced over and over again to make sure that it was done. Yet there were so many people that got up on stage that did not complete in 60 seconds. and They just got cut off. And I was just like, dude, they told you that, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? And a lot of the pitches were just like confusing and not clear. And, you know, we had a lot of back, a wind at our back. Like we were generating at that time a couple hundred thousand a month in revenue. So it was like pretty attractive. Mm -hmm. um, but my pitch was really clean and clear. And I met the one of the partners from Rustic on that panel. And then they later eventually did invest in the company. We had like three or four term sheets after that. Mm. Um, but it was pretty exciting. Like I came back. I remember my, my partners... Uh, had really no idea that I was doing that. I think I told, I definitely had told them, but they weren't like, oh, dude, this is awesome. Like, let me help you prepare. They were kind of, I don't know. They were kind of yeah, not really into it. Let Jeff do his thing. I'm, I'm yeah, sure, he, they I'm were sure like he's going to come back with nothing. Right. And, it was kind of like that. I sort of felt a little bit alone on it, but I came back and I'm like, dude, I won the competition. I met these guys and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Let's, let's see what happens. Yeah. So, and that ended up leading to raising from those guys. And I learned a lot, like we got um, term sheets from like three very different groups, like, these were like classic LA VCs, big fund, you know, very traditional style. Then we had like a more a guy from San Diego that was more of a hustler, kind of just like cool guy, smart guy. It's a much smaller fund, more of a seed fund kind of thing. And then I met this guy up in San Francisco. I'm still friends friends with him too, who was uh probably the smartest of the guys that we had we had met, but also smaller fund, more boutique, like was kind of just early getting into the game, didn't have as much pedigree. And um, his terms were not as attractive. Like the most attractive terms we could get were, were out of out of rustic. Mm. Um, in the end, I think we didn't really get a lot of value from rustic. You know, they were on the board and and so forth. But I didn't. They weren't that helpful, yeah. really. Um, it wasn't so much like a strategic partnership. Yeah. It was kind of just like right now we're crashing and burning. We need money. Like, well, no, at that time we were killing it. No, oh, we weren't oh, crashing oh, so and burning. Like, when we yeah, first yeah. raised the money. I was crushing it. Yeah. That was before mortgage. They, gotcha, the second, gotcha. when they gave us a second tranche, mm -hmm. that's when we were crashing and burning, but they just weren't, you know, they weren't that involved. They didn't really, they really weren't operators. None of the people that worked there were yeah. operators, you know? Jeff, when you say one of them was smarter than the other, or just the use of the word smart, what made them smart or you know what do you consider smart when it relates to the vcs at that time well the the the, the one guy was like when we'd sit down with him he was like very thoughtful about like okay well are you gonna do this do you think we should do this like what about this product or like how does that cut like he was really into metrics and like very like in the business he was like right. another person that would be having right, right, having right. at a table talk about how we grow this business you know and that i didn't get that uh same type of you know, closeness from, from the other guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that's what was smart. And, but to be honest, like I've really not seen any LA startups have that kind of positive experience with their investors. I mean, I've raised money since and I've helped a lot of companies raise money and I've rarely seen where like the investor is involved to the extent that they actually make an impact. Like, why do you think that is? I mean, 
it's, a, it's just a combination of things. Like one, like that's not their business. Their business is finding companies investing and then finding another company to invest in. You know, it's like they would want to help, but they can't, you know, they it's can't. It's like really, a lack of time and resources. It's a lack of time and resources. And then there is lack of experience. Like not a lot of VCs are also, you know, startup founders. You know, there are some, the Mark Seuss of the world, who like start and sold a company. Mm-hmm. And there's other, there's certainly more there are today. Yeah. But even then, like, you know, Mark Seuss on your board. He's going to come to the board meetings and give you some good nuggets. But like, other than that, you're not talking to him like every week and like mm-hmm. trying to figure out where to go. Like, he's just busy, you know? Yeah. So I don't think that's as common as people like to think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just not the case. Mm-hmm. And even, even in the accelerator world, like when we started Amplify, that was part of the idea. It was like, we're going to get in the trenches with them and like help them build their companies and like really be involved. We didn't have time for that shit. Yeah. Like there was no time for that. Like we so talk to in. us about Amplify. You know, this you started this while you were still building Velocify. No, right? that was right as I was transitioning out of Velocify. So okay. at that so seven year marker, I I I was, you know, I built a transition plan to leave Velocify so I didn't go from like, you know, big salary, cold turkey. Yeah. Like I'd kind of like, okay, I'll go three days a week, and then two days a week, and then one day a week. And during that time, I was talking to people trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And that's when I met Paul Brico, who um was had the idea and like had gotten some people interested in putting money behind it. And there wasn't really an accelerator in LA at that time. Like Mucker hadn't started mm-hmm. and start engine, um, and start engine was science. actually start engine was the very first to launch. Yeah. Um, but they didn't really have a fund behind them. It was was really science different. Run back then? Science hadn't started yet. And even the one that Suster that upfront or whatever their name mm-hmm. of the company was before they had one, I can't remember their name of their fund, but basically no one had launched launchpad launchpad. Yeah. Yeah. So none of them had launched. And then, so Paul was kind of working on it, but everyone was kind of working on one. And we all launched literally like the same week, it turned yeah. out in the end. But he and I hit it off and and he was very good at like bringing pieces together and raising the money, which I wasn't really interested in doing. I was interested in like building this engine to like, you know, fund companies. And there, that was like a new thing to build. That was interesting. And so it was a good pitch because a good match because he's not really like, he, that's not, he doesn't do that. He's mm-hmm. not good at that. So it was a good compliment. Yeah. And, um, and so then I left Lee 360 and then we started, um, Amplify like August of 2011. Um, and then we closed our first fund in like, you know, October of 2011. And then I was there full time for a few years. So kind of like going back to like when you wanted to start Amplify, like tell us kind of about the vision that you had for I know, I know you guys are like focused on the community as well, like of LA because, yeah. you know, LA wasn't really a very big, like, you know, Silicon beach, I don't think existed back the then. The name wasn't there. Yeah. I mean, but Paige it was like, Craig you know, companies like mentioned it at parties yeah. from here and there, but it was like, right. It was like just on the cusp. So, yeah. so what did you envision and, and has that vision, I mean, clearly it's come to life, but like, tell us about the kind of the early days of that. Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of what Paul wanted to do and what I felt like I could, you know lead the charge on doing was to kind of create a, a community. And my, my thing was let's co-working spaces were not that big at that time. I was like, let's make a co-working space inside of our facility. So we have like this like community here of people that are coming like, yeah, they're going to want to get funded by us, but like, we'll have this energy always. So that was a big thing that I sold, that I sold them on and we did, um, which helped. And then I did, you know, every event I could for the first year, I was on the, every panel. I was just like all over. I was very active in the scene and Paul was certainly very visible as well. And so that plus Mucker plus Launchpad plus all these guys like creating this energy funding actual companies, it did it was a catalyst for that. So like there's there's no question that I was like a big part of 
launching the LA startup scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fun. Like, and, and I thought when I did this, I thought that one of the things I would really like and that I'd be really good at was helping other startups, mm-hmm. you know, get money, build them, especially when we were thinking about we we're going to be like be involved. In fact, at the time, I wanted to not only do a co-working space, which we did, but I also wanted to do like a general assembly education thing. In mm-hmm. fact, I tried general assembly was very new at that time. They were just in New York. And I was like, I tried to get them to co-brand a program with us out of our facility, which they ended up doing with Launchpad, you know, which I was kind of annoyed at because I was like, I'd proposed that idea. Yeah. And they didn't do it with us. They did it with Launchpad. And it kind of didn't work for Launchpad, but it did work for them. They started to grow in L.A. Um, but that was a big part of it. I was like, we got to educate these people and give them skills and like training. And plus, that could be a great revenue stream. Like I was always about how we can make money with this thing as well, not just for investors and for founders, but like how could this business be self-sufficient and not just rely on raising funds? Yeah. Because if we were to have all this other stuff, um, so that was a big part of it. But like I, was, I started to say, I thought that I'd have more time to work with the companies and I thought that I would really like doing that and like investing and would be good at it. And I think I was good at it. Time will tell if we with our exits at, you know, on the yeah. deals that I was involved in. We've, we've definitely had it's some It's a long exits. game, for sure. It's a long game. Yeah. But I didn't like it that much. And I missed actually building shit. Like I wanted to make stuff. And I didn't get to do that. And a lot of times I would be, I would sit down with a founder if I could and I'd say, here's what I think you should do. Or here we'd work out a strategy and then they'd go off and they wouldn't do any of that stuff. Mm. And it'd be frustrating. You were basically the VC that you wanted. I, was, I wanted to be the VC that we wanted, yes. Yeah. Which I couldn't actually be from a resources standpoint. Right. But that turns out I didn't actually like to do. Yeah. Because I wanted to be on the building side. Right. You know? So yeah. that's, that's ultimately why I left um amplify you know because it was a pretty sweet setup the the gig was pretty good and aside from like your personal kind of vision and and for your life and like characteristics and traits and things that you enjoy doing what is like the hardest part about launching a fund like that and an accelerator program and an incubator and all these things in one raising the fund is the hardest part and paul owned that that was like i wouldn't have been able to do it on my own i just didn't have the relationships to raise we raised like five million bucks in the first fund and he that was 90 percent him i think I went to a bunch of the pitch meetings and like I built the decks and like I helped make it come to life, but he got those people like on board and a lot of it were just like, oh, it's Paul, I'm going to put money in. Yeah. So that was essential. And that's one of the things I, I realized that right away. I'm like, this could actually happen because this guy can actually close, like fund. And he subsequently has closed, you know, I think they've done three or four funds um, since I've left. Yeah. So that was a big, big part of it. And it's really hard to do that without having actual cash. And that was like one of the big things that we offered is like, we give you real money. We're not just like one of these accelerators where it's like, we give you advice. Mm. But we're like, our deals had money. And over time, we gave more money. We found that initially we were doing 25K, which was kind of the number at that time, the whole YC number. Yeah. And then do a lot of deals. Which I think is 50 now, right? It's maybe 50. Yeah. So we were like, that's what we'll do and look at a lot of companies. And we found that like, one, it's a lot of work to look at a lot of companies and like evaluate them effectively. Two, there's just not a lot. There aren't as many fundable companies as you would want. And so we, and 25 grand isn't shit. You can't do anything with 25 grand. So we basically started to see that it's like, it's really more money to less companies. Be more restrictive on who we fund, like pick the best. And then give them more money and more resources. And that's how the company like evolved. I think they only do like maybe five, seven deals a year now. And wow. what were you looking for, you know, with these companies? Was there anything specific that you guys consistently looked for? Um, I mean, the, the, the standard startup stuff, like, are these guys, 
have they really identified a problem? Mm -hmm. Do they have some product in market that seems to be addressing that need? Have they looked into or figured out any kind of, you know, user acquisition strategy? Does this thing scale to a point where it could be subsequently funded? That was a big piece. Like we weren't going to put money in a company that wasn't VC fundable. Like our, we were just the, the first step at seed, then VC, then, you know, series A, series B, whatever. So every company we had to see that path. And if it didn't have that, it wasn't a good fit. It might've been a good company, um, and I think that's a big thing that a lot of founders, um, get tripped up on these days. It's like, I got to build a company that can be a billion dollar company so I can go raise money. Okay. You can do that. And there's certainly, it's attractive in certain ways, but like, there's nothing wrong with a company throwing off a million dollars in cash flow that mm -hmm. no one will VC fund, but you're putting 800 grand in your pocket every year. Yeah. Right. Like, dude, you that's overdo that for five years. Chances are, if you, if you're lucky enough to exit, you're not going to make that much money. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I think that a lot of millennials and, you know, I hate the word, but that's what they call them. And we're both millennials, unfortunately, I guess. But we get pretty bored pretty fast with what we're doing. And I think when you have so many ideas and you are creative and you want to do all these things, and in your case, you want to build things after realizing it, you know, how did you deal with that boredom or, you know, being complacent or being in that same place for too long? You know, were, was it distracting to you? Did you try to always find a way to do something else? And how did you how did you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, the more and more I realized, and now I'm like, as clear as I've been about it is like, the smaller the organization, the more shit I can do. Yeah. And the less, the more good I do, and the less bad I do. So like, really, now I just want to have like, a lot of little teeny companies. You know, I don't really want to build a company with 100 employees first i'm just going to get i'm going to push myself out of a job anyway <laughs> if i build something that happens to have that trajectory that path then i'm going to find a way to get someone to take it over for me and move on to something else but when it's like less than 10 people i get to do a lot of different stuff and it's useful um so that's sort of what i aim to do now which a lot of those companies stay that size you know but I'm fine with that. Yeah. So since that time, you know, you kind of had this itch to go back into creating, doing your own thing, creating your own product. Um, you've created two companies. Um, is that right? Affinity and AudioJoy? Yeah, since then. Tell yeah. us kind of how those came about, what, yeah. you know, what, what you saw there. And yeah, I mean, so I got back together with Charles again after that. So he had, what did he do? During, oh, what did he do? He was kind of doing different stuff. I don't, I don't know if he had joined any company or whatever, but during the time, because he left Lease360 before I did, maybe like two years before I did. So he was kind of off on his own, doing a lot of mobile stuff, doing a lot of engineering. And so we and, were still and, friends. And sorry, by the, sorry to cut you off. By the way, Velocify was sold, right, after, after In, you left. Not till just October. Just oh, this, this recently. This, yeah. So Charles wasn't there at the time. No, all the founders had left. I was the last founder to leave. Got it. When I left in 2011, Tony had left in a year prior to that, and Charles left like two years prior to that. Mm. Um, and so... Yeah, but then we sold in, it sold in October. So Charles came back into the picture and was like, he wanted to do something. He knew that he needed someone like me that could like put the piece together. And he wanted to do a lot of engineering and wanted to do mobile stuff. And so we just kind of started messing around with different things like on the side and just building different apps and trying to figure out where their problems were and, you know, just experimenting really. And at that time, the whole mobile messaging thing was starting to like really take off and we got interested in that and built a few prototypes and thought that there might be some opportunity there. And, you know, we probably could have done a better job at like 
the whole customer development, identify the problem, even then, and I had had all this experience leading up to there, but it's still tough. It's still hard to do. Like I, that's what you were trained to do. And that's what all the documentation explains, but it's like, it's still a lot easier just to build something and then find an audience, mm -hmm. even though that's not the way to do it. Yeah. Right. You want to find the audience and the problem and then build. Um, but so we have done a little bit of it, but not, and probably enough. And we basically started building this like messaging as a service platform, similar to like layer. There's a few other companies out there that were doing this, but we were trying to, uh, tap into this like micro community interest thing where like we saw that there was these mobile apps that were like friend to friend networks, the Snapchats, the WeChats, all these things that were like, Hey, you come in, you find your friends and you like, but they weren't organized like interest-based communities mm. um uh like GeoCities, for example yep. it was like an old one it was kind of like the mm -hmm. early days of that but we saw that there was these these hyper interested people and we were like the, the hypothesis was that if you brought them together in this messaging environment which is a very engaging environment could you build these little communities into something and could we connect them all through this one platform so it's like maybe you come in through the like parenting community but you also have interest in the like, you know, weightlifting community. So they like cross over and the whole platform was designed to manage all that. And we eventually built like SDKs where other apps could integrate all this stuff. So that was kind of the vision. Hmm. We, along the way to test all of our things, we built our own apps. So we just launched a bunch of micro communities and tied them all together we must have launched like a hundred different communities. Wow. Like some things that were as niche as just a movie. Like we had a Hunger Games community. And like there's actually one company that did the exact same thing and is still doing okay. It's called, um, I can't remember, but they have like hundreds of different little communities. I can't remember the name of it. And when you say like, so these are all separate apps? They're all separate apps, but they're interconnected. So you could theoretically come in one door gotcha. and communicate with people on other apps gotcha. by like just adding those topics to your hmm. feed and you would find people. And so you, in your list of, rooms yeah. you could have rooms about all different topics that were essentially coming from one centralized system yeah. but they were being deployed so when you come into the parenting app the default stuff you see is parenting but if you explore deeper you can find everything else we had that was kind of the vision um in the end we found that like it didn't really work you know we couldn't we couldn't grow the communities on our own we couldn't find enough places like what our theory was we'd go to places where communities existed but weren't engaged so we'd go to an, uh, a content site, you know, like even take like a Buzzfeed and be like, Hey, you've got these people that are consuming, but they're not engaging with each other. Maybe they're doing comments, but comments aren't nearly as engaging as chat. And so the whole thing was like, how do we empower these entities that already have a bunch of people and get them to come together to stay longer and make more money off through ads and things. That was the vision. And we couldn't, it was just never like that important for those companies. It wasn't that painful. Like things were working. So maybe you were ahead of the time on that too. Maybe eventually they will see that there's still an opportunity to do that, but it became very difficult to sell. The, what did happen though, which happens a lot with startups, like, you know, a la Instagram, is you build one thing and then you see another, you know? So one of the things that we did is we built all these micro communities and one of the communities, which was this like super hardcore geek community called, we called the app Geeking. Um, these people were like hyper, hyper engaged, like super engaged and like it grew organically and it was a nice community. Mm -hmm. And we started getting into like monetization and building ad tech and like all this so other stuff. What was the community about? Just geeks. It was just like people that were into comic books and cosplay oh, and of, role okay. play and like yeah. all this stuff. And so we started to focus in on that app and try to grow that and get really 
good at ad tech and how to monetize. And we were like one of the first be- first companies to use Facebook's um, native ad platform. And um, in fact, still, we're I'm, I would be surprised if there's anyone in LA that knows more about mobile native ads than I do. Like I know a lot. Like mm. we've done a ton of testing and mm. ton of stuff. Um, in fact, I'm in this this Slack group for with like the best of the best mobile ad tech people. Like the head of ad ad monetization at Zynga, the head of ad monetization at Marvel, like all the major app companies that have big monster apps are in this room. Nobody, they don't do, most of them don't do native ads. You know, mm-hmm. Facebook is the, a large provider of native mm-hmm. ads. You know what I mean? It's like in a feed and it mm-hmm. like yeah. fits in. It's not a yeah. banner. It's not an interstitial. Right. It doesn't really work so well in games. It's mm-hmm. more of a community kind of um, interface. But um, anyway, we're really good at that. And we started making a ton of money off this app. You know, it was very profitable. Unfortunately, we couldn't really figure out a way to scale it, like, you know, hockey stick scale it. So it was mm-hmm. not like we could we could continue to try and build a big business on it. That's because your users were also, like, native. Like, you, they needed to, like, download the app and be a user of the app. They couldn't come through, like, some other Right. We started to shut down these other communities. We just started focusing on this to see if, like, hey, can we build an asset here that's really worth something yeah. um, beyond making cash flow? And... Um, we just could not like it was, and I don't know the answer as to why, like is, you know, we have 50,000 active data, monthly active users on the app or six, 75,000 monthly active users, which is a good number. Like there's nothing to be shame about there, but we're not talking about millions, but are there more than 50,000 of these geeky people in the world? Of course. Like, of course, like why couldn't we find them? Why am we, it's like, I'm not sure. Maybe my UA, my user acquisition skills are not up to par. Mm-hmm. It's possible. I tried to, we did try to like sell the asset to like one of these bigger gaming companies that might be able to take their audience and grow up, but it just never really panned out. But the app still exists. It makes revenue per user. It's astronomical. Like it's extremely profitable app. Um, it just, you know, and it stays where it's at, you know, organically. It's a great, it's a great little business. But unfortunately, it's nothing that's going to like make the investors in that company a liquidity event you yeah know? so because of that and i just didn't want to go out and try and raise more money on something i didn't really believe in we kind of just like put it on pause it still runs still stay enough makes enough money to stay alive maybe someone will come around and buy it at some point but i started working on other other things and that's when i started working on audio joy mm-hmm. so how tell us yeah tell us kind of how that came about uh well i had actually worked like earlier i'd always been interested in audio books probably back to my early days i like sucked at um uh i sucked at reading and english and like i said i wasn't very great student so i never was good at comprehending books but i liked books and then i discovered audiobooks and especially when audible became a Mm -hmm. thing i was Mm -hmm. a subscriber so i was listening to you know as early as you know 2000 i was listening to audiobooks very regularly a lot of business books a lot of fiction at that time they have like it was like on cds right cds but it soon i think audible started I want to say maybe in like 2005, maybe they've been around for mm. a while and then they got acquired by Amazon. Mm-hmm. I don't know when, but about then I started using audible. Um, and those are, so where were they like on online? No, it was on mobile app at that time. Oh, okay. Yeah. But this is like before the iPhone. What year did the iPhone come out? 2008, 2007, 2008, 2007. Okay. So maybe it was, maybe it wasn't until 2007. It was about the time I remember probably using mm-hmm. it on my iPhone. Yeah. So it was like, right. I think the right iPhone when came mobile... out before 2007. Cause I had the iPhone. You must've had Velocify. some secret like no, beta. No, no, I had a little... I w- <laughs> the only reason I remember that, cause I was in 10th grade in high school and I started high school in 2006, 2007. So it was 2007, 2008. 
I think you're incorrect about that. But <laughs> yeah. because I, it has but, to be earlier because I had an iPhone at Velocify. Well, I guess so, because I left Velocify in 2011, maybe. Okay, so 2007, maybe it was. But so, regardless, yeah, like, it, yeah, sounds yeah. Like, it sounds like they were Whatever. like, what, as soon as the iPhone came out, like Audible was like, it was, it they, they, they already knew it was going to be a I, thing. So I really liked the story. I really liked audiobooks. Yeah. I liked consuming audio content. At the same time, prior to that, I was getting more and more into like self-improvement and meditation, and I had gotten sober earlier that, several years before that, maybe, what year did I get sober? 2001 maybe mm. i can't even remember now it's been 15 <laughs> 16 years yeah so uh i was like into that space and so i was listening to some of those kind of books as well and as i started to think about and this was still while i was at amplify other things i built some prototypes in the like self-help audio arena you know trying to do some different experimenting there and um so I had built, I had some assets, a few things that were on the app store and whatever. And when I started seeing that I was going to sort of fade out of the day-to-day from, from geeking, um, I started to think, can I turn this into a real business? And um, that's when I started focusing on that company, which is basically, you know, it's audible for self-help is the, this, you know, in simple terms where it's hyper-focused on everything self-improvement from productivity to anxiety relief, parenting, um, you know, meditation, all that kind of stuff. And I just found that there's a huge long tail of very fragmented, talented content creators Mm -hmm. out there, Mm -hmm. YouTube channels, Udemy courses, like blogs, podcasts, and particularly having done audio or video content already. So not just text. Um, that were not books. They were like shorter form, which was a big thing. Like I, I never really felt that the audio book form is the best for self-improvement content. It's just too long. It's mm-hmm. too hard to like put into practice. So I always wanted like shorter content than that. And that's what I started to see was out there. And so I started to see, look, could I license this content? Could I incorporate it and like start to build up a platform of this content? That's basically what Audio is. So Jeff, would you say that your why for Audio Joy, what dates back to you sobering up? That was a that got me into the the category of self improvement mm-hmm. more. I was probably always very like self, like I was always looking inside. Self aware, yeah. Yeah, I was probably always like that, but that became it became much more of a day to day thing. It was like a life and death thing, mm-hmm. so it became like a big part of my life. Yeah, um, and meditation and all that. And so that combined with the audio format of consumption was where I saw the interest. And it was, I was kind of solving my own problem at that time, right? Because I didn't, you know, I was listening to audio books, but I felt like that wasn't the right one. Mm -hmm. And only like the biggest names were getting published in audio books, but there was all this other stuff out there that's good, um, that's not really getting distributed and not, there's not a platform to get that stuff out there in audio format. Mm-hmm. Um, you really podcasts are one of the only ways, but I, yeah. I actually don't love podcasts for certain types of content because mm-hmm. it, it's conversational like this. It doesn't really work when you're trying to like educate or help someone right. as good. I don't, in my own no, experience, no. I think, I think you're right. And I think that especially in this day and age, I hear a lot from, you know, folks, especially in LA, it seems as though stress and anxiety and depression is like, is very common. You know, I don't know if it's the oh, traffic, yeah. I don't know if it's, you know, just, the the hustle and bustle that comes with the city but how does someone i guess i have multiple questions but how does somebody find audio joy and you know or how and also how do you find the folks that should be using your product well 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a customer acquisition challenge, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. it's that's probably the biggest challenge I have right now, and mm-hmm. that most companies have, especially mobile companies, just getting users is very tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I do a, a lot of different things, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm definitely in the scaling that state of the mm-hmm. business. I got pretty good at like growth hacking over my years. So like I grew the initial base of the business through various hacky strategies, mm-hmm. you know, not like traditional yeah. user acquisition strategies that kind of got me to a point. And then now I can like re put some of that money into try and like actually grow the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's definitely hard, you know, it's helpful that there's a lot more stuff out there and people are like more aware and they're looking for things. So I get a lot of organic, you know, organic downloads from the apps Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, but it's also becoming very competitive. You know, it's like you know, Headspace and all mm-hmm. these guys mm-hmm. are like you know taking up a lion share. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely a lot of green field, and there's a lot of content that's that we have that people don't know about. Um, so this is a growth. But I, you know, I'm I'm moving way slower than I probably could. You know, if mm-hmm. I went and raised a bunch of money and like hired a bunch of people and like did all that stuff, I could probably scale it. And have a better chance of scaling faster, also a better chance of crashing and burning. Mm-hmm. But I'm not really, I'm just not really interested in that, you know. So it may be, I may, you know, leave a lot of money on the table or get my lunch eaten because of that strategy. But I'm also just like not at the stage of my career where I want to do that anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's I'm kind of that sweet it. spot of like, I think I can do this with a small team and stuff. Yeah, well, it's but. okay. Like if it turns out to be like a lifestyle business, like I'm okay with that. Yeah. You know, and if it turns out there's an opportunity to really raise and like I can bring someone to run it and grow, like maybe I'll do that. Like there's I, there's no shortage of ideas. I could do a million other things. So so is Audio Joy like 100% focused right now for you? That's like business-wise? Yeah, that's my most. I do that. I do like still a fair amount of like startup consulting. It's funny, I'm like getting more into that even though I said I didn't really like that, but I found that when I do it in a in like a more like focused way where I pick one person or one company or one thing at a time and like really spend some time with them, I can have impact versus just like, you know, this amplify, it's like way too yeah. hard to jump in these companies. Um, and so are you, are you involved with any of your past projects or are you, are those totally in the past? No, I mean, I still run geeking, like it still runs and I'm still, you know, I still spend time on it to keep it going cause I'm not going to yeah. shut it down. Um, but none of the other projects, like I don't work with well, philosophy is sold, so I don't have any ties to them at all. Amplify, I feed them deals and I look at deals from time to time. Um, but not super involved yeah. there. Um, I have, like I said, a handful of companies that like I help and some are paid consulting gigs. Some are not. I do a ton of clarity calls, you know, clarity FM, you know, that site. Yeah, I've heard of it. I just yeah. I was one of the first people on that site. Um, th- this guy Dan Martell started that, that site, and um, it was a. If you get that guy, he's a stud. He might live in San Francisco though. Um, but so I get a you know I do at least two or three calls a week mm-hmm. with that. Like I had two call. I had a call today. I had a call yesterday. And it's pretty fun. And then I also teach entrepreneurship in high school. In fact, I teach at the school at, I went to. Like the funny yeah, well, thing was, I left there. They're like. That's awesome. I was like, this, I'm never coming back here. I, I <laughs> like, we don't ever want to see You don't want to see this guy. Like, yeah. our Arizona State, we want to fucking cross that thing out, right? <laughs> but then now I'm like a teacher there, and I've been teaching there for four years. What do you teach? Uh, entrepreneurship. Like, mm-hmm. I have a senior class. We created it from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, this, it's only in the fall. I only teach one class. Like, I'm a very different teacher because, like, I'm an actual contractor. Like, there's no other teachers like that that cruise in for yeah, one yeah, class yeah. in the fall only. 
It's, very, it's like you're an adjunct, like at a, at a yeah, college. Yeah, yeah. It's cool for me because I don't want to get like wrapped up into the bureaucracy of that is high school, mm-hmm. public or private. But I like teaching, and I you know enjoy working with the kids, and it's a great class. And what's some? I'm curious too. What's something that like these high schoolers are now thinking about in terms of entrepreneurship? Like, what are some of the ideas they have, or the problems that they have that they want to solve? Well, like, funny thing is, like a big topic that all four of my classes at least one group has mental health I assume yes mental health yeah huge huge issues like yeah it's a major major problem it's a major area they mm-hmm. all like see it and know it especially at like intense schools like Brentwood where it's like so mm-hmm. stressful and aggressive and even not schools like that there's other issues it's just a real like epidemic in a lot of ways I agree, yeah. um and so that is a topic that we get into a lot um, and a lot of people want to do something about. I've yet to see any of my students come up with something that's like, like that might work. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have an idea of what might work, but I definitely see the problem there. Yeah. And a lot of people see the problem. So there's, there's some, and to some extent, like what I'm doing with audio joy is like in that space. Like, mm-hmm. so maybe I'll, I'll discover and crack something else. That's just more than just like consuming audio content. Yeah. Um, it's an area that I'm definitely interested and passionate about and maybe i'll get like more into at school like more work where i'll be involved in wellness or maybe we'll put together some other types of courses there uh but yeah that's probably the most yeah. common thing i'm not surprised because i think i hear from a lot of you know our friends and you know folks that are older than us younger than us it just seems to be and i don't know if it's something that's new or it's just something that's at least more transparent and talked about now and it yeah. just seems like it's a on the business side, there's definitely an opportunity, but I think more so it's like, I think it's a real problem that needs real yeah, solutions. It needs to be, it really does need yeah. to be addressed and there is money to be made whenever there's real problems, but sure. it's also, you know, doing good. There's absolutely to be done for sure. Absolutely. What was that moment like when a business that you started from the ground up was sold for whatever X amount of money? Like, uh, I know you were no longer involved at Philosophy. I mean, like, I wasn't I, involved day to day. Yeah, yeah, but it was still, still your, yeah, and it was still your baby. You had created it. Yeah. Was what it. was that feeling like? And is it like, you know, how all these people say, like, this moment where, like, just yeah, kind of surreal. validates yourself? Yeah, it was very it. satisfying yeah. that, like, what, you know, we had created from scratch, like, finally has found a way to an exit. And, like, I felt, yeah, I remember coming into, I was teaching that fall when I, when I was like signing the docs, I came into class and was like distracted for like 15 minutes while I was signing the docs. And the students were like, they didn't know what was going on. And they were like, what do you, dude, we're talking to you like, hey, like pay attention. I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And then the next day I came in after it had actually closed and I was like, oh, sorry about yesterday. Like, here's what was going on. I was like signing the deal and they were like, oh my God, it's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. Awesome. It's very satisfying. Well, Jeff, it's been a great conversation. You know, thank cool. you so much for your time and chatting with us. Uh, it was awesome learning about your your journey, and uh, we're excited to see where all the projects you're working on now go. Cool. So. Thanks, guys. Super fun. Yeah, yeah happy to do it. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks.